0: Well, welcome again. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Merry Christmas to everybody. If uh, if I don't see you before before Christmas, um, this is this is such a fun, exciting time of the year. Uh, it's exciting, of course, for uh, lots of just kind of reasons that we all enjoy being around family, eating you know lots of food, uh, presents, just the fun festivities of Christmas. But of course, we are also celebrating that our King has come to us. And as we've been kind of walking through Advent the last uh, few weeks, we've been looking at these themes of Advent that oftentimes are associated with these candles, uh, these themes that we get to kind of focus in a little more clearly on at particular times. And so we talked about hope and what biblical hope is. We talked about joy, what biblical joy is, what peace is, and then today... Last but not least, in fact, the Bible says primarily, we're going to talk about love. So uh, if you've got a Bible with you, you can have it with you. We're going to travel around through a few different scriptures. It'll be up here on the screen as well, um, but you're welcome to join me as we read through these scriptures. Let me first just kind of start um, by talking a little bit about our, cultural's under, our culture's understanding of love. You know, sociologists will tell you actually that the concept of love in popular culture is waning these days. Uh, If you look through, in fact, they've kind of done some stats of looking through popular music, and the word love is not found as often as it used to be. It's actually been replaced by words like good time. (laughs) And so uh, we don't sing about love in popular music nearly as often as we used to. And the same is true in film. There's not nearly as many schmaltzy romances Just a few years ago, the the Washington Post declared that the rom-com was dead. Some of you may say, good, it's about time. But, you know, love is in some ways kind of fallen out of fashion in our culture. And even for those who are interested in it, sometimes it can be hard to really define. Uh, I saw something the other day that a, a children's book publisher had made this video, had commissioned uh, an artist, an illustrator, to sit down with children and ask them the question, "What does love look like?" And then he would sketch what love was according to these children. And as you can assume, it was really cute. Uh, there was lots of fun things talked about. Uh, the, you know, love was bubbles, love was hugs. One kid who I especially liked said love was a burger and fries. I thought that was pretty close to the truth. Uh, One child said, love is sprite because it makes you feel really tingly. You know, if we're going to really figure out what love is, what it looks like, we've got to actually go to the one that the Bible says is love, the founder of love. So I want to read you as we start here from 1 John chapter 4. Listen to these words about who the Lord is. and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What we're going to do today is we're just going to settle in and focus on God's love. John says there in 1 John that love is from God, that God himself is love. And, you know, we could talk all day about what it means for us to respond to that love, how we love one another, how we love the Lord. Jesus says those are the first and second most important commandments But the foundation of all of that, and where we want to just settle in today, is what does God's love look like? And let me just say, if you maybe have just not been in church for a while, or if you're not sure what you believe, or if you'd struggled even kind of with this understanding of feeling loved or knowing what love is, if you have in your past difficulty or abuse, then listen up. Because this is what needs to feed your heart this morning. The love of God given for you. So here's how the first way we're going to talk about it is that God's love looks like service. What does God's love look like? The first thing we'll look at is that it looks like service. And again, we're just going to scratch the surface on this. And we're just going to be in a few different New, P- New Testament passages. There is plenty in the Old Testament about God's love. And we could travel all throughout the Bible and spend days upon days digging the depths of God's love. We're just going to scratch the surface here for a little bit. And the first thing we'll look at is that God's love looks like service. If you've got a Bible, you can flip it over to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John 13. It's also on the screen above me. Listen as I read. This is Jesus uh, about to sit down for the Last Supper with his disciples. It's right before he's about to die, and he does something pretty amazing with them. John 13, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Then, Lord, not my feet only, but also... My hands and my head. Let me give you a little quick background on what Jesus is doing here. Again, they're gathered for the feast of Passover, a yearly feast they would gather with. This is going to be Jesus' last Passover. And in the Greco-Roman world of that time, in the Jewish world of that time, you know, of course, there were no paved roads and there weren't a lot of hiking boots. And so everybody walked everywhere they went and they wore sandals. And so, as you can guess, feet got pretty dirty. And so, typically, when you would have somebody in your home, the first thing that you would do when you welcome them in is to have their feet washed. Maybe if you remember the story when Jesus is eating supper at Simon the Pharisee's home, and that's Jesus' big condemnation of Simon, right, is that you didn't even wash my feet when I came in, but this woman who has come has washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. So washing of feet was a a, a very typical, kind, hospitable thing to do to somebody who came into your place, and it was almost always done by a servant. If you had any means at all, you would have a household servant, and that servant's job would be to wash the feet of the people who came over to visit you. And if you had even a little bit more means and you had multiple servants, then the foot washing job always got passed down to like the newbie the rookie. This was the servant's servant. It was like the intern's intern. That's whose job it was to wash the feet. So, washing the feet was a job done not just by a servant, but by the lowliest of servants. They wouldn't even let actually Jewish servants wash feet. That had to be done by Gentiles. You would almost never find peers washing one another's feet. That would be weird. That was something that was to be done by the people who were on the lower social strata. And never, ever was there a superior that would wash an inferior's feet. In fact, outside of John 13, did you know this? There is no record anywhere of a superior washing an inferior's feet. It was the job of the servant. And so you can kind of see where Peter is coming from when he's totally freaked out by this. When he's looking at Jesus, the king of the universe the one who has ordered the cosmos together, get down on his knees and take a wash basin and start working with dirty feet. And Peter says, whoa, something is way out of whack here. Because Jesus at that point is almost completely unrecognizable to those who know him. I love the way that Servian of Gabala says this. Wouldn't it be cool if we were all known by our first names and where we were from? Servian of Gabala, AD 400, this is what he says He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped around himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and the pools tipped water into a basin. And he who before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Isn't that beautiful irony? The one who has created all things, made himself a servant, Paul tells us in Philippians, that he might serve those he loves. He is displaying his love to his disciples by serving them. I read a story the other day about a a small Christian college in South Carolina called Columbia International University, and their former president, a guy named uh, Robertson McQuilkin, uh, was married for 55 years. His wife died, uh, finally succumbing to Alzheimer's complications after 55 years of marriage. But 15 years before she died, he actually resigned from his position as president. It was a job he had always wanted, a job he loved he got plenty of acclaim for it. He got to speak at fun events. He got to be a part of the university that he loved and had given his, his life really for. But he resigned from his job. And I want you to listen to the letter that he sent out uh, to, the, to the university about his resignation. This is what he says. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel, that's his wife, is contented most of the time that she is with me. And almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now, full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, Occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so. Her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Friends, that is a picture of the way that God loves his people. He doesn't have to. He doesn't mourn over having to come and serve His his disciples. He doesn't mourn over having to come and help us out of our difficulties. He doesn't sigh in frustration about those people who just never, ever do the stuff they're supposed to do. It is not a burden to Him. It is a joy. He doesn't have to. He gets to. He loves to serve. You know, our culture says, If you love me, I will serve you. That's the way that we're used to hearing it. But the gospel says, because I love you, I will serve you. I want you to just sit with this for a second. Yes, the Bible says that we are to love Jesus in return for what he has done. Yes, the Bible calls us to serve and worship the Lord. Yes, the Bible calls us even to join in in his mission and actually act according to our convictions. But friends, primarily, primarily, God does not call us to come and do. He calls us to come and receive. He calls us to come and be served by him. He doesn't call us to come and bring all of our accomplishments, to bring our record of righteous deeds, to bring all of the resumes that we try to put together for everybody else. He calls us to come and be loved by him. Jesus does not say, come to me, all who are high achieving, and I'll give you a medal. He says, come to me, all who are weak and weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Because Jesus loves to serve. That's the first thing that God's love looks like. It looks like service. All right, let's travel back in the Gospel of John and look at John chapter 3, because God's love also looks like sacrifice. This is John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, some of the most famous words in all of the Bible, not, not, not simply shown just at football games, but actually also in the Bible. John three sixteen. listen to these words, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I love the way that one commentator puts this. Listen to how he breaks this passage down. He says, God, the greatest subject ever, so to the greatest extent ever, loved the greatest affection ever, the world, the greatest object ever, that he gave his only son the greatest gift ever, that whoever believes should not perish, the greatest promise ever. See, God's answer to the world's problems, God's answer to the brokenness of the world, the way that God said he is going to display his love, even for those who have run away from him, is to sacrifice, to give, to give completely, to lay himself down to go to the greatest extent possible, to love the people who have run away from him. I read another story that came out of a prison fellowship ministry about a 15-year-old boy who was imprisoned, and he was there kind of gathering for the worship service that this ministry was putting on, and one of the pastors was there, was engaging him in conversation, and was asking about his family. He said, you know, are your parents going to be here at this worship service? And he kind of turned sadly to start talking about his father and how his father was a heroin addict and how his father abused him growing up and said, no, no, my father will definitely not be here. And the pastor said, well, what about, what about your mom? And he said this, and I'm gonna read you this quote. He said, uh, he said look over there at that small woman. There's no one like her. <laughs> I've been locked up for a year and a half, he said, and she comes to see me every Sunday you know how many buses she takes every Sunday to come see me? And then he began weeping when he was talking about this. He said, she takes seven buses, seven buses every Sunday just to come and see me. Friends, that is the kind of love that our heavenly Father has for us. That is the kind of love that has been shown to us in Jesus that he has taken seven buses to come all the way to us. He has crossed the universe to come and descend to us, to condescend, to take on even our flesh, to become one of us, that he might take up our weakness and show us his love. He has gone so far, not simply in the incarnation, but also so far that he might sacrifice even his own life. God loves us more than the most loving mother loves her son. God loves us more than the most loving father loves his children. God loves us more than the most loving husband or wife loves his or her spouse. God loves us so much that he would sacrifice for us. If you want to see what love is, it is sacrifice. But there's more too. This one, we got to go further into the New Testament, into First Corinthians. Another pretty famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul is describing what love is. And so we've seen that love, God's love, is first service, that God's love looks like service, that God's God's love looks like sacrifice. Now we're going to see from this passage that God's love looks like stability. Listen as I read to you from 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove all mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... We prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That phrase just has so much weight to it. Love never ends. Love endures forever. Did you catch even the way that Paul finishes that that paragraph there? He says there's prophecies, and those things are good, right? And the gifts that God has given to his church, those are good things that should be embraced, but they're not permanent things. Even amazing things like faith. Something that actually uh, we receive God's grace through faith, the Bible tells us. Faith is really important. We are called to cling to the Lord by faith. But guess what? When Jesus returns, we won't need faith. We won't need faith because he will be there with us. There will no, be no need for trusting because we will be gathered with him. It will be present, not future. Hope is the same way. Hope's really important. We cling to that hope to know what the future is. It actually enlivens our hearts. But when Jesus returns, we're not going to need hope anymore because that hope will be fulfilled. But what will continue is love. Love will last forever. We will, when we gather around Jesus at his banquet table, when he returns, we will feast with him and he will love us and we will love him in return perfectly and completely and eternally even for those who so oftentimes run away from it. There's a story that maybe some of you have even lived as a parent. It's probably a fairly familiar one. Parents have a young child. He's of course the apple of their eye. They love this young boy, but as he grows up in kind of his early teen years, he starts to stray. He falls in with the wrong crowd. He starts to experiment with multiple things, and his life kind of starts to deteriorate. The story I heard the other day was pretty touching of parents in that same situation that maybe some of you have been in. And the son comes in late, well past curfew, and he's clearly drunk, and he passes out on his bed. And the mother and father kind of get up. The mom gets up and, and walks out of the room, and the husband thinks maybe she's gone into the kitchen to, 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 to cry or to fix herself uh, a drink. And he walks in, and she's she's gone into the son's room. And she's sitting by his bed, and she's simply stroking his hair and telling him that he loves her. And the husband says, what what are you doing? He's asleep. He he can't even hear you. And she says, yeah, but it's, it's the only time that he lets me love him. Friends, we so oftentimes don't even let God love us, do we? We don't like it. It doesn't feel right to us whether that's shame or guilt or rebellion, and we want to run away and we don't even know it, but God loves to come and love us even when we don't let Him. His love lasts forever. It endures like the love of that mother. And then finally, though, I want us to see this as we kind of end here is that love is not just, it does not just look like these things. It, of course, looks like them and more. But love, most clearly, the Bible tells us, looks like a person. Let me read you again from that first John passage, the one we started with. Listen, listen again to what John says. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then listen to this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That means that God showed us what love was by sending us Jesus. That means that we can't actually understand what love is without looking at Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of love. He is the embodiment of love. And so if you want to know what love looks like, the first place we go is to look at Christ. In that 1 Corinthians 13 passage, we get that great description, full body description of what love is. All of those great words, patient, kind. I want to just do a little experiment with you for a second. We're just going to take a few moments. You may want to do this on your own later today. Just ponder for a second, reading through that list. And placing your own name instead of the word love. Derek is patient. Derek is kind. And when you finish that little list, just see how you feel about the truthfulness of those statements. If you really want it to hurt, ask your spouse or your children how true it rings. But now listen to this. Listen to that passage one more time. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind. He walked faithfully with those who continued to doubt him. He was kind, healing the sick and the diseased, feeding the hungry, moving toward the outcast and the disenfranchised. Jesus does not envy or boast. He did not envy position or power, but he humbled himself taking up a towel and a wash basin and getting on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He's the epitome of humility. He associated himself with the weak and the outcasts. Jesus did not insist on his own way, but rather laid his life down, going to the cross willingly. Not my will, but yours be done, Father, he said. Jesus was not resentful, but rather said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoiced in the truth, the truth of salvation and the triumph of mercy. He's the one who said, I am the truth and the life. Jesus bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things. Jesus endured all pain, all suffering, to bear on himself the weight of the sins of the world. Jesus' love never ends. Friends, it is that love that we see this Christmas, that God, who himself is love, would come as a child, born in poverty, born amongst the animals, born in obscurity, that he might serve us, that he might sacrifice for us, that he might do so enduringly to the end. That is what Christmas is about. Let us bask in that love today. Let's pray. Father, this is what we need to hear because it is the truth that changes hearts. What we are to do for you, what we are to do in order to gain the pleasure of the people around us, what we are to do in order to make our own selves feel good about ourselves. Lord, these things are fleeting, but it is your love for us that endures. Lord, let us see this love. Let us take it in. Let us rest upon it today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.